I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to a couple of openings of Scripture this morning. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the other, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12, if you will. We started a series a couple of weeks ago that we've uh, uh, entitled or on the subject of sanctification. And we talked uh, the first week, first service, on what sanctification is. And uh, the, the word itself is just simply defined or can be defined as separated unto God. And it carries the implication that uh, that someone or something, and, I, and, and you can both sanctify things. In the Old Testament, they sanctified uh, the elements or the, the, uh, uh, the instruments of the temple for the service of God. But then they also sanctified the priests. So both people and things can be sanctified for God's service. Now, when I say that, that specifically means something that is used to serve God or to worship God with. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about sanctifying things in the New Testament. Uh, that's, a, that's an Old Testament term or an Old Testament term, um, activity, I guess. But the New Testament talks about people being sanctified, talks about you and I being sanctified unto him. Now, there's two ways that sanctification is spoken of in the Scripture, and one is uh, a one-time event. The Bible says, for example, when Jesus made us righteous, when he washed us in his blood, we were sanctified. We were separated unto God. But that's not the only, that's not the end of it. Now, there's disagreement in the, in the church world and has been for many years on what sanctification is. Very few people have a real good uh, working definition of sanctification in the church world because of the different ways that it can be viewed. Some people think that sanctification was something that happened once you were saved. And the, and the Bible says so, says that is true. But then the Bible speaks further of sanctification or sanctified lives. In other words, sanctification comes about as a process after the initial separation unto God, after our spirits are made new through the new birth. There is an additional sanctification process that takes place as we live our lives according to the word. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul's writing by the Holy Ghost and says, But of him are you in Christ. Thank God we're in Christ. Wouldn't we be in a mess if we weren't? But of him are you in Christ, Jesus, who of God is made unto us, notice that's past tense, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, most of us focus on the wisdom, righteousness, and redemption part of that verse. Very seldom do we ever look at this verse and say, Thank God he's made unto us sanctification. And there's, uh, there's two ways you can look at this. Each and every one of these things tell us, each and every one of these four things mentioned, happened at the time that you were born again. At the time you were born again, wisdom was made unto you because Jesus came to live in your heart. Righteousness was made unto you because Jesus made you righteous by his blood. There was an exchange. Redemption was made unto you because you were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But you don't, you don't, that's not the end point of those things, is it? I mean, you don't say, well, thank God I was made wisdom in Christ Jesus, and so that's it forever. Don't you partake of and don't you seek to increase that wisdom that's in you through the knowledge of the Word? Well, don't you do the same thing with righteousness? The Bible says that you were made righteous by the blood of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For God made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that or so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You've already been made righteous. But that's not the end of it, is it? Don't we seek to to uh, to understand that greater? Don't we seek to gain more knowledge about that? And I'll, I'll go even so far as to say this. The biggest reason that sin is a problem in the church is because people don't have a righteousness 
consciousness or an understanding of the righteousness of God that they were made through the blood of Jesus. It's the understanding of that righteousness that brings us into to, to right living and right standing with God uh, as far as the, the manner in which we live our lives. Same thing where redemption is concerned. The Bible says you've been redeemed by the curse of the law. Well, that happened when you were made a new creature in Christ Jesus, when you accept, accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But that's not the end of it, is it? Don't we grow in knowledge of what that redemption means? Look at how much of the church does not recognize that we were redeemed from sickness just as much as we were redeemed from spiritual death. Well, how do we change those things? Through the knowledge of the Word of God. Now, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul is telling us something by the Holy Ghost. These may be the most important scriptures as far as living the Christian life is concerned that are in the entirety of the scripture, entirety of the Bible. Because it's an interesting thing, even though the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That's a done deal. You're never going to be more of a new creature than you are at the moment you're saved. You are a new creature. Another translation says a new creation. Another translation says a new species of being. But what part of us is made new? We know that our physical bodies aren't made new. We know that our minds aren't made new. It's our spirits that are made new through accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then the first thing that the Bible tells us to do after the first thing that God demands of us after we get saved is to change our thinking so that we can live our lives here on the earth, our physical lives, through our bodies in a well-pleasing manner to God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, so he's talking to Christians, he's talking to people that have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you... Notice God doesn't do it. You have to do it. That you present your bodies. You present your bodies unto God, a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. We say this every time we quote this verse or read this verse. Most translations say instead of reasonable service, it says spiritual worship. You remember in John 4, 24, Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We charismatics are real good about thinking spiritual worship is singing in tongues. And there is an element of spiritual expression that comes from singing in tongues. Paul said, if I sing with the spirit, uh, he said, what is it then? I will sing with the understanding and sing with the spirit too. So that's a good thing to do. But that's not spiritual worship. It's spiritual expression. But spiritual worship is what you do with your body when you're here on the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather sing in tongues than present my body a living sacrifice. It's easier. I don't have too much struggle to sing in tongues. But boy, presenting my body a living sacrifice, that gets painful sometimes. And that's the thing about a sacrifice. A sacrifice is something that dies. Now, how are we going to do that? We see that the Bible tells us to do it. So many times people are thinking God's going to do it for them, and he won't. It's something that you do. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility, not his. And how are we going to do that? How are we going to take part in this thing that Paul, even though he doesn't use the word, this thing, this process, which is identified in Scripture as sanctification. This is a separation unto God. Presenting your body a living sacrifice is the way you separate yourself, is the way you sanctify yourself for the service of or or the service for or worship of God. Paul said to the Romans in, earlier in this, uh, this letter in chapter 6, he said, don't yield your members as instruments of sin. The word instruments there is the word weapons. Don't let your body be used as a weapon for sin. 
but instead presented unto God a living sacrifice so that it can be a weapon or an instrument of righteousness. Your job, my job, not God's. And that is the process of sanctification. It's how you separate yourself unto God. Your spirit's already been made new. Your spirit's already been sanctified and separated unto God, but your body hasn't. So there was a one-time sanctification process that took place inside you, in the real you, your spirit. But from there on, it's the process of how you learn to live your life out in the righteousness in which your spirit has been made. Now, how's that going to happen? How are we going to do that? You don't have to look too far to realize that this is an area where the church has some real problems. And it's not new for us. The church in Paul's day had the same problems. Paul tells every church, he writes to every church in the letters that he presented to them, he wrote to every one of them something about stopping some kind of sin that they were involved in. There was sexual sin and drunkenness in the Corinthian church, and he told them to cut it out. He told the Ephesian church, which was the most well-known, the most famous of all the churches, the most doctrinally sound and, and, uh, um, well, they had the best teachers around, that's for sure. He told them to put away lying. Now, why would you have to tell Christians to quit lying? Because Christians lie. He told them to quit stealing. Why would you have to tell Christians to quit stealing? Because your flesh still wants to do the same wrong things that it did before you got saved. In other words, he's saying, as you present your body a living sacrifice, you'll stop lying. As you present your body a living sacrifice, you'll stop stealing from others. As you present your body a living sacrifice, you'll learn to be kind to each other, forgiving each other, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's what he's saying. Even though he doesn't use the word sanctification, it's in every letter that that he wrote. Every letter written to to the church in the New Testament is about living right before God. So how are we going to do that? Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice the what you think, notice the way you use your mind, notice your understanding has everything to do with living a sanctified life. In other words, you're not going to be able to present your body a living sacrifice unless you gain some kind of understanding that's different from what you had before. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. The transformation of the Christian life comes through the renewing of the mind. Greatest need in the body of Christ is renewed minds. No doubt about it. Nothing else is even close. It'd be nice if the church had more money, but that's not going to make the difference. It'd be nice if we had better preachers, but that's not going to make the difference. It'd be nice if we had better facilities or better pews or better whatever. Those things might enhance our worship experience or our church uh, activities and so forth. But the greatest need, hands down, in the body of Christ is the renewing of the mind. Because that is the only thing that will transform your Christian life to be separate from, sanctified unto God, separate from the world, separated unto the service for God and the worship of Him. Be not, trans- be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, what's that going to do? That you may prove. The word prove means to determine by experience. In other words, so that you can live out in your life that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, folks, we've said this before, but you need to be aware of this. God does not have three wills. He does not have a good will. He does not have a perfect will. And he does not have an acceptable will. He's saying the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. And he says the only way you're going to be able to live out the will of God in your life 
We know what the will of God is. He just told us in verse 2, and that is to present our bodies a living sacrifice, to live sanctified lives. The only way we're going to do that is to live renewed, live lives with a renewed mind. Now, I want you to consider some things, folks. I'm going to turn you to some different scriptures and look real quickly at some things. Look with me to Romans chapter 6. I want to ask you some questions. And really, in my thinking, you judge this for yourself, but in my thinking, it's not a matter of people, uh, well, I guess it would be in some cases, in, in many cases, but with you and me, it's not a matter of learning something that you've never heard before that's going to make the difference in your life. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard the word, you've heard who you are in Christ. So it's not something that's just all of a sudden you're going to hear something new that you've never heard and, and, and bang, that's going to open your eyes and, and cause you to, to turn the corner in your Christian life or make the difference somehow or another. That's rarely the case. What is most often the, the case is that the things that you've heard before, all of a sudden your spiritual eyes are open to where you understand it. Wouldn't it be nice if we got everything, and when I say got everything, I mean understood with our spirits everything the first time that we heard it. Wouldn't that be great? But it doesn't work that way. It works through reading the Word. It works through studying the Word. It works through meditating on the Word. And then all of a sudden, things that you've the scriptures that you've read, things that you've seen in the scriptures with your physical eye, maybe hundreds of times, all of a sudden become alive on the inside. The Bible says the entrance of God's Word gives light. What does that mean? That means the Word doesn't enter your spirit the first time you see it. It doesn't enter your heart, your spirit, man, the first time you hear it. It comes through a revelation. And many times that revelation, it can work different ways. Many times that revelation is something that all of a sudden you see something that you never saw there before. I've had uh, scriptures where the word, certain parts of the, the scripture, a phrase or certain words in the scripture seem to stand up on the page. The words just, you know, just got tall all of a sudden. Whereas the Holy Ghost bringing my attention to it and I saw something there I'd never seen before. Yet I may have read those scriptures thousands of times. But most often, it comes with, for me at least, most often that revelation of the Word comes to an understanding of something that I'd never seen before. Now by that, I may again, I may have read those Scriptures thousands of times, but all of a sudden I understood it in a different way. Well, I think that's what spiritual understanding is about. It's where your mind is renewed to what the Word has really been saying to you all along. Finally we see it. Finally we get it. Jesus talked to his disciples about being dull of hearing. Well, why? Did he pick stupid guys? You could make that argument in a couple of cases, I guess. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you guys are unintelligent. You guys are the, the, the most stupid people that I could get a hold of. That's not what he's saying. The fact that we're dull of hearing means it's our natural thinking. It's our physical bodies and the way that we're used to operating in this life that keep us from seeing the reality of God's Word. So I want to help you see some realities today. Won't be anything new, but hopefully it'll become new. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Well, let's back up to verse 13 to get the context. We quoted the scripture a minute ago. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness. The word, un, uh, the word instruments is literally the word weapons. Don't use your body as weapons of unrighteousness. Well, that has to talk about the same thing he says a few chapters later about presenting your body a living sacrifice, right? He's saying present your body unto God. 
Let God use your body through, through the obedience to the word instead of letting sin have your body as, an, as a weapon or an instrument. Yield, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness unto God. Verse 14 is what I want you to see. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the, the law. The word the is not in the original translation. For you are not under law, but under grace. Now, can I ask you a question? When does verse 14 become true? For sin shall have no longer dominion over you. When is it true that sin won't rule and reign over you? What does he mean? Sounds good. But what does he really mean? See, folks, the church has done a marvelous job of telling that we will have power, that we will stand perfect, that we will have peace before God. The Bible tells us, or the, the church, rather, has done a wonderful job in telling us that righteousness is something that we can look forward to, that is something that will, that will be ours, but it always puts it off to heaven. The idea that the church has portrayed for hundreds and hundreds of years is that when you get to heaven, you'll be righteous. When you get to heaven, sin will no longer have dominion over you. When you get to heaven, you'll have peace with God. When you get to heaven, all things will be possible unto you. The power of God will be yours. The blessings of God will be yours. It's all put off till heaven. Those are the songs that we sing. And they're not just the old hymns. There's a lot of old hymns that cover that. But the modern day songs say the same thing. They talk about the tragedies on the earth, but oh, someday when we get to heaven. But wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say we have eternal life now? John wrote to the church and said, we know that we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. We have eternal life now. We're not going to get a different eternal life. We're not going to get more eternal life. We're not even going to get a greater measure of eternal life when you get to heaven. You'll have the same life, the same eternal life there that you have here. Sin is not going to have any less dominion over you in heaven than it has over you here. When is this true? See, folks, if heaven is necessary, if us getting to heaven, if the death of the physical body is necessary for sin to no longer have dominion over you, then that means the blood of Jesus wasn't enough to do the job. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, the Bible says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, sin can be used either singular or plural in Scripture. And usually when it's talking about sin singular, it means spiritual death. It means all the consequences of sin. That's what this means. It's not just saying sins, individual sins shall not rule or reign over you. It's not just saying individual sins, lying, cheating, stealing, and so forth shall not have dominion over you. It's saying that death, spiritual death, which passed upon all men because of Adam and Eve's transgression and sin in the Garden of Eden. It's saying that sin and its consequences, which are personal sins, which is poverty, which is sickness. It's saying none of the results of spiritual death. That's what sin singular means. It means spiritual death and the consequences thereof. It says spiritual death, if we interchange those, those terms, it means sin and the consequences of sin, sickness, poverty, and so forth, shall not rule and reign over you here in this life. 
because of the blood of Jesus. One of the things that aggravates me to no end is when people talk about how that somebody was, may have been believing God for their healing or somebody may have been in some situation of sickness and they, they, they die and they say, well, they're healed in heaven. No, they're not. Because healing is for the physical body, not for the spirit. The Bible says we're made new spirits in Christ Jesus. It does not say one thing about being healed in spirit. Healing is for the physical body. And our loved ones, no matter what form or what manner of death they died, once they got to heaven, they don't have a body. They're there in spirit, and their spirit is in heaven the same as their spirit was here on the earth. Now, there's coming a day when Jesus comes back, they'll come with him and they'll receive their body then and it'll be made new. But you don't get healed because you go to heaven. Neither do you get made righteous because you go to heaven. Neither do you gain peace because you go to heaven. In heaven, you'll have the same righteousness that you have here on the earth. In heaven, you'll have the same peace that you have here on the earth. In heaven, you'll have the same things, the same spiritual characteristics here on the earth that Jesus paid for. That's what you'll have there. So the question is, when does this become true? If in your thinking, and most of the church thinks this way, at least it seems so. Most of the church thinks that when we get to heaven, sin will no longer rule and reign over us. Sin will have no longer dominion over us. Not true. He's not talking about in heaven. He's talking about now. Sin, and meaning spiritual death, sickness, poverty, and the consequences thereof have no more dominion over you now because you're in Christ Jesus. That's why he said, and please notice the progression, that's why he said the understanding of this causes you to act on verse 13. Don't yield your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't let your body be used as a weapon of sin. Use your body as a weapon of righteousness because sin doesn't reign over you anymore. Sickness doesn't reign over you anymore. Poverty doesn't reign over you anymore if you're in Christ Jesus. And that's we know that's who he's writing to. He's writing to brethren. He's writing to Christians. So he knows that Christians, every Christian, is free from spiritual death and the consequences thereof. Well, what are we waiting for heaven for? If that's true, why are we waiting for heaven? Now, folks, I got to tell you, heaven, the more I read about the, the, from the scripture, what the Bible tells about heaven, and it doesn't tell us a whole lot. But what it does tell us leads me to think that it's going to be a wonderful thing and I want to go someday. But I'm not in any hurry to go. I'm not afraid of going. If I went today, I'd be happy. I'd, I'd, I'm confident that it would, in order for it to be heaven for me, I would have to forget a lot of things that I didn't get accomplished here on the earth. Otherwise, I'd be in heaven being tormented. Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I have time to do that? Why didn't this? Why didn't that? Why didn't the other? Well, that wouldn't be heaven. So there has to be things that you forget once you get to heaven by the mercy of God. Has to be. Wouldn't you think? Now, the Bible doesn't exactly say so, but it seems to fit with what the Bible describes about heaven. But I'm not in any hurry to go. I want to learn to operate in and partake of and, 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 and enjoy the benefits of every aspect of eternal life here before I get to heaven. I want to stand before the Lord and Him say, boy, you sure handled things well down there. You found out, didn't you? You learned. 
You, you understood what the Word says about what belongs to you, and you did a good job. You exercised those things in your life. Wouldn't that be a lot better than standing before heaven, standing in heaven before the Lord, saying, well, you know, you didn't make too good a use of your time. Too bad you didn't figure out these things on the earth. That's not the way I want to go in. How about you? Well, what's going to make the difference? The only thing that can make the difference is spiritual understanding. Renewing your mind to the truth of the word. Coming to realize that where the Bible says in Romans 6, 14, sin no longer has dominion over you, that means now. And I can hear the gears turning in people's minds. Some of them sound pretty rusty. People are thinking, but if sin doesn't have dominion over me, then why do I keep stumbling and falling? Because you haven't come to the realization of it. Let's look at another one. How about uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10? Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Let's, well, let's read verses 9 and 10. It says, For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, when are you going to be complete? When is this true? Are you going to be complete when you get to heaven? Most people don't even think that through, but that's what they think. They don't even think it through. They don't even think, well, oh yeah, when I get to heaven, I'll be complete. But the idea is, I'm not complete here, so it must be there. But when is this true? It doesn't say, for in him you shall be complete. It says, for in him you are complete. Now, the word complete means completely furnished. It means filled up to the top. And that's the context that he speaks of in verse 9. He says in verse 9, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. The Godhead meaning the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. In Jesus is the fullness of everything there is. And you are filled up to the top in him. In other words, there's not one thing that you lack. There's not one power, bit of power. There's not one ounce of strength. There's not one thing that you may think that you're missing that really is missing. So many times we have the idea that if God was just give us more strength, then we could overcome. There's not any more strength he can give you. It's already inside of you. Paul said it this way, writing to the Ephesians. He said... That God, in Ephesians 3.20, he said, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think according to the power that works in you. In other words, God can do more than you could even imagine. He's so much bigger than any prayer you've ever prayed or any prayer you could ever pray. And he answers those prayers. He makes those things able to be partaken of by the power that's already in you. Why? Because you're complete in him. How many of us are looking for power to come from heaven some way or another? Oh, Lord, give me power. Give me strength. Well, where's that going to come from? I mean, if there was a hole in the sky where God just dumped power out, we just ought to go live there. That's not how it works. It says the power is already inside you. Well, Pastor Mike, if the power is inside me, why do I feel so weak and helpless? Because you haven't renewed your mind to what's inside you. 
See, we think of presenting our bodies a living sacrifice as being a drudge, a, 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 a toilsome thing. Oh, man, it's hard. Well, there are some things you have to cut away. There are some things you have to say no to. But when you renew your mind, when you take the process the way that it's intended to work and renew your mind to the blessings that the Bible say belongs to us, it becomes a whole lot easier to say no to certain things. Because now you, because you're saying no to the things of the world, the reason is because you've said yes to the things of God. And the things of God are so much greater than the things of the world, you don't even miss most of the stuff in the world. But if you try to do it backwards, if you try to say, okay, my body really likes to do this, but I'm just going to say no. And that's why people stumble. They keep going back and forth the same things. But if you renew your mind to the Word and say, here's what belongs to me, I'm complete in Him, I'm filled with all the fullness of God, why do I care about that? And I'll go even a step further if you'll allow me to. I'm just being nice. I'm going to anyway. (laughs) The reason that the church looks so much like the world is because they haven't renewed their mind to what belongs to them. The reason you can't tell the difference between some people that are saved and not saved is because the people that are saved have only made been made new by accepting Jesus as the Lord and they haven't renewed their mind to the truth of what belongs to them. They don't care more about the things of God than they care about the things of the earth. And if you don't, if you don't come to realize what belongs to you, you're not going to care more about spiritual things than you care about earthly things. And if you don't care more about earthly things, you're going to look more like the world than you look like Jesus. Let's look at another one. When is this one true? How about over in uh, Romans eight thirty seven? Maybe we ought to start in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now notice what he says is who. Notice the personality he attaches to these things. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? That's hard times, isn't it? He puts a personality on that. Indicating that the devil tries to bring trouble against you to make you think you're separated from God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Are those things enough? Are those problems in life enough to separate us from the, from the love of Jesus? Is being attacked with sickness enough to make you think that God doesn't love you anymore? Is being impoverished or going without financially, is that enough to make you think that Jesus doesn't care about you? Isn't that exactly the place that we're tempted to go to? First day of a tribulation, first day of a problem, we may not think God is against us. But boy, if that problem drags on, you get to wonder, where's God? I prayed. When is this ever going to change? That's the whole point that Paul is asking. Are these things great enough to separate you from the love of Jesus? Well, are they? He answers the question. Verse 36, he quotes the Old Testament. Nothing new in our day. It happened all the way from the beginning. As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now, folks, Paul is speaking personally here. Paul is persecuted in every place he ever goes. There's only one city that Paul ever went to that he didn't have trouble, that he wasn't run out of town from. Only one city. 
that's recorded in the book of Acts. Now, he went, may have gone to other places we don't know, but of the places that we have record of, they went. One city, only one city, didn't run him out of town. So when he's talking about hard times and troubles, he's speaking from personal experience. And don't you think for a minute that the devil didn't work on him the same way he works on you. Don't you think for a minute he didn't stop and question every now and then, well, God, are you really in this? I mean, it seems like we'd find at least a couple of places where people received us. seems like there'd be a couple of places where we didn't have people stirring up a trouble against us and trying to stone us or kill us or whatever. But Paul is saying, even as the Old Testament says, we run into trouble on every hand. Everybody's trying to do us in. Now he answers the question. Are these things enough to separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37. No. Nay is King James English for no. No, absolutely not. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now when is that going to be true? Notice Paul didn't say, in all these things, I'm more than a conqueror. If he'd said I, then we would say, well, yeah, he had it made. He was an apostle. God gave him something extra, but he didn't. He said, no, in all these things, because we're all going to experience those things in some measure or another in our lives. We're going to experience lack. We're going to experience trouble. We're going to experience perils of some type. The world is full of problems. And since you are in the world, you're going to be affected by the world's problems. But does it mean that God's not on your side because you're going through a hard time? No, certainly not. Why? Because in all these things, we are more than conquerors. When are you going to be more than a conqueror? When you get to heaven? That certainly is not what he's talking about. He says we're more than conquerors now. Why? Because we're complete in him. We're filled with the fullness of God. We've got every bit of God's power, God's blessing, God's work that's wrapped up in Jesus. Every bit of that is on the inside of us. So we're more than a conqueror now. Well, then, Pastor Mike, why am I not conquering? Because you don't understand who you are. You don't yet see with the eyes of your spirit who you really are. Your mind is not yet renewed to who you are. You may know the scriptures there, but you hadn't seen it yet. Because once you see it, once you see it, instead of running from the devil, you go looking for that little boy. Let's look at another one. How about Philippians chapter 4, verse 13? Here's one everybody knows. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. When? When can you do all things through Christ who strengthens you? I'd be willing to bet you, folks, 85% of Christians have either heard that scripture or can tell you that something like that's in the Bible. Well, then why does the church constantly talk about what it can't do? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, if Paul could, he didn't have any more of Jesus than you do. If Paul could do all things through Christ who strengthens him, and God's no respecter of persons, then that means you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But when is that going to be true? When you get to heaven? Again, I don't think people think these things through. 
I don't think they logically think these things through. They don't meditate on the Scriptures enough to really see what the Bible is telling them to equip themselves with the truth of the Word. Yet there's this underlying idea in most Christians that it'll take heaven. It'll take getting to heaven to really make them who they, they who the Bible says that they are, who they really ought to be. Well, again, I'll make the same point that I made earlier. If that's true, then the blood of Jesus wasn't enough. He needed physical death, your physical death, the death of your physical body to finish the work. And if that's true, then the blood of Jesus is not what the Bible says that it is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember uh, after a service one time, there was a, um, somebody that Brother Hagin knew that uh, said to him in the in the speaker's room, the, the hospitality room they had set up in the back, the fellow had come in from out of town, had known Brother Hagin for many years and hadn't seen him for a long time and got in the service. And after the service, I heard him say, Brother Hagin, you make me feel like I can do anything. I hear you talk about who we are in Christ and you just make me feel like I can do anything. Brother Hagin said, you can go do it. And whether he realized it or not, he was saying, well, I feel like I can because you've pumped me up. You, you've encouraged me in the service, and now I feel like I can do it. But there was this unspoken but in his voice, and Brother Hagin tried to get that out of there. He said, well, you can. Go do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When? What about Romans 5.1? It says, it says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus. When? When are you going to have peace with God? Is Paul saying, because you've learned to overcome your flesh, now you have peace with God? See, again, here's the idea. If we could just learn to live righteous enough, if we could just learn to overcome sin in our lives, if we could just learn to defeat the devil and the work that he's doing in our bodies and the stuff we know we're doing that's wrong, then we'd have peace with God. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying those of you that have made it, you have peace with God. He's saying you have peace with God because Jesus is in you. Now you have peace with God. Let me show you one more. We could keep going all morning. Let me show you one more. Turn with me to the book of Jude. Nobody talks about Jude very much. Can't even call it a letter. It's just one chapter. It's kind of a postcard. Notice he said, Jude, verse 24, it says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He's signing off and he's saying, God is able to present you before him without falling with exceeding joy. Folks, if it takes the death of the physical body for Jesus to have joy over you, then he's not who the Bible says he is. He is able to keep you from falling. That means stumbling over sin, falling into temptation. He is able to keep you from falling now. And he lives in you. In other words, you have the power to never sin again for the rest of your time here on the earth. John said the same thing. John said to the church, writing to the church, verse chapter 2, verse 1, I think it is. He said, my little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. 
But he said, I'm writing these things to you that you sin not. In other words, if you'll understand, if you'll come to renew your mind to the truth of the word, who you are in Christ Jesus, and the fact that you have the ability to present your body a living sacrifice, you can live sin-free for the rest of your life. In other words, sanctification, total sanctification is possible. That sounds like a far-fetched idea to most people. Absolute sanctification is possible. The sanctification of your body and the renewing of your mind to the word, which is the sanctification of your thinking, the renewing of your mind to the word is absolutely possible. It's not some far-off idea. Now, the church has preached that it can't be done. The church preaches that it can't be done, that there is a sin nature in man. Can I ask you a question? Isn't the sin nature the devil's nature? There was no sin nature before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was no sin nature before they fell into spiritual death and were overtaken by spiritual death. Therefore, the sin nature that the church preaches has to be the nature of the devil. How can the nature of the devil and the nature of God, which is what we receive when Jesus is becomes the Lord of our lives, how can the, the nature of the devil and the nature of God coexist? How is that possible? Do you think Jesus and the devil are roommates? Well, that's what they would have to be in you if you have a sin nature. Wouldn't they? They'd have to be cohabiting, inhabiting the same space. And your body, which the Bible says is the temple of the Holy Ghost, would have to have a sin nature. So the temple of the Holy Ghost has a sin nature, right? Not so much. Now, the Bible says sin is ever-present in our flesh. It's ever-present with us, but it's not us. And that's the whole point that Paul makes in his journey to understand how to overcome sin, how to make his body do what he wants it to do, how to present his body a living sacrifice. That's the whole process that he goes through. He says, I came to realize sin is ever-present with me because my body has the experience of sin because of Adam. My body has the experience of sin and always will have the experience of sin, but that doesn't make it me. There are a lot of things that I've experienced in my life that are not me. And if I had the chance, I wouldn't do them again. And there's no way I could be labeled as somebody that does those things that I had experience with before. Because now I'm different. Now my mind is renewed to the word. Now I realize who I, even though I was saved when I did some of this stuff, now I know who I am in Christ to a much greater degree. And there's not a chance in the world that I'd, I'd repeat that experience. Well, I can't say I don't have the experience. I can't say that my body never had that experience or did those things, but that's not me. You ever pulled out an old photograph of yourself and laughed? Saying, can you believe we thought that looked cool at some time in our lives? Well, that's what the devil tries to do. He tries to bring a picture, a photograph of what you've done in your past. When if your past may just be yesterday. But he tries to bring a picture, a photograph to your mind, to your memory, an image of what you used to do and say, that's who you are. And it's not. Just because I looked that way in that old photograph doesn't mean that's who I am now. I'm a lot smarter than that. I'm too smart to know that that looks bad. Or you, you know what I mean. Where I used to think that looked good and it, it doesn't really anymore. I'm, I'm smarter now. I know more. 
I'm hopeful that 10 years from now I won't look at today's picture and have the same experience, but nevertheless, it's a continuous growth process. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. That means without spot or wrinkle. To present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Folks, if it takes the death of your physical body for Jesus to have joy over you, then the Bible is a lie. It's flat out lie. It is said by the ancient rabbis, when Moses came down from the uh, from Mount Sinai, spent 40 days in the presence of God, he had the stone tablets, but there was a lot more that God talked to him about for those 40 days than just what was written in stone. And so when Moses came down from the mountain, he took people that were known as scribes, holy men, or as holy as they could get, you know, people that were separated for this purpose. Is what I mean by holy men. And he told them the things that God said to him. And as a result, we have the first five books of the Bible. In the Jewish uh, tradition, it's called the Torah. These were books, letters, stories, accounts that were translated not just word for word, but letter by letter that God said to Moses. These were things that were written down. And on top of that, Moses explained things This is called the oral tradition. He explained things that God told him about the stories that he that he referred to. The stories that were recorded. And it is said by the ancient rabbis that Moses told them that God said to him about the the, what we know of as the book of Genesis. Moses is supposed to have said that God said the story of man and the story of every man can be found in the book of beginnings. The story of man and the story of every man can be found in the book of beginnings. Now, there's a lot of things that, that, that I find interesting about that. For example, we know that the first five books of the Bible are different than, than any other writings that we have, even though all the rest of the Scripture was inspired by the Holy Ghost. None of the rest of it was translated letter by letter in the Hebrew. There are men that even before the advent of computers that realized that there is a mathematical component to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, that none of the other letters or, or information of the church has. Now that with the, the propagation of computers, they put it out in grids and, and, and they found, well, Albert Einstein, for example, said one thing. Uh, you know what he worked on more on his life than any other thing? He worked on what was called the cipher of the first five books of the Bible. He said, without question, the first five books of the Bible are a cipher from a a supreme being. He never would come out and say that it was God. But he recognized that there was a mathematical component to it. And it's the story of mankind. Now, you can see some similarities in what happened to the earth, as told us in the early part of of the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, and what happened to man. Now, here's what I mean. It starts off in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning God. Christianity is different from any other thing. The Bible is different from any other book, any other philosophy, any other writing, any other anything, because it's God saying, I started this. In the beginning God. It refutes atheism right from the beginning. Nowhere does God try to prove that he is. Nowhere does he prove that, try to prove that he exists. He said, in the beginning God. 
What does that tell us? It tells us that God exists. It tells us that God was before the beginning, whatever the beginning was. It tells us that he was greater than both heaven and earth because you can't make something that's greater than yourself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It does away with the idea of pantheism or multi-gods. It tells us that he's a personal God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the original Hebrew, there are seven words that God says, I started this and here's how it went. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other doctrine of man starts with man tries to work itself to God. The Bible starts with God coming down toward man. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2, and the earth was, literally became, without form and void. No doubt whatsoever. In verse 2, it tells us that something changed from the way God created the heavens and the earth to how the earth was then found. And the earth was without form and void. Isaiah 45, verse 18 in the, uh, um, kind of hard to see it in the English, in the, in the King James English, it says he created not the earth in vain. Well, that word in vain or phrase in vain is the same exact Hebrew phrase without form and void. So in Genesis 1, 2, it says in the earth was literally became without form and void. But Isaiah 45, 18 says God didn't create it without form and void. So something had to happen from the original in the beginning, God created the heaven, and the earth so that it became without form and void. The only thing that makes sense to me is the fall of Satan when Satan was cast into the earth. Verse 2 tells us the earth was in a situation, in a state of ruin. It said, and darkness covered the face of the deep. That's the story of man. Man was created in one form. Something happened related to Satan, who's the author of sin and death. And then man became void of anything. He was covered with darkness, separated from God. No presence of God whatsoever. And there was one and only one thing that could fix that. And it said that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. It took an action of God. It took something that God did extending himself toward mankind, just like he extended himself back toward his creation. And then it tells us about how the earth was created. It says he took six days and created the earth. Literally, it says he made the earth, not created. There are two different words that are used. Isaiah, I mean, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, I think it is, said that God made the earth in six days. Well, what that means is, in the beginning, God created, and then from there, he took materials that were already here and remade the earth. The Bible is very specific on that in, as far as the language is concerned. So God took six days. At the end of the sixth day, he looked back and said, this is very good. In the uh, in the Genesis creation account, seven times does God say, it, it, it was good. But it was good, and God put man in charge of it, and he said, your job now is to garden, keep the, dress and keep the garden, garden protect it, literally. Your job is to have dominion over the earth in the presence of God's enemy. Satan was already here. That's the story of man. Because man was perfect in the way that God created him. And then he fell into spiritual death. He associated, became associated with Satan. And as a result, then he was covered with darkness. Mankind was covered with darkness until the Spirit of God moved. Spirit of God moved upon Mary, overshadowed Mary, and brought forth the incarnate Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself and then brought us to a place of redemption 
a place of righteousness, restored us to righteousness, restored our dominion here on the earth so that God said, just as in the remaking of the earth, and it was very good. God looks at you right now in the same way that he looked at the earth after the first six days when there was no presence of sin and said, this is very good. This is very good. Now, we know the story. We know the story about how man fell. Eve was tempted in the Garden of Eden. Adam went along with her. Somebody said, where would we, where would we be without the women? In the Garden of Eden. That's an old John Osteen joke. Not mine. Don't get mad at me. It's John Osteen joke. Man fell. And as a result of that fall... It says that spiritual death overtook him, just like God said. God's warning against eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the, in the day that thou shalt eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Literally, to play on words, dying thou shalt die. Spiritual death shall overtake you. Well, it did. 930 years after Adam sinned, spiritual death overtook him in the form of physical death. But for those 930 years, here's what I want you to see. In those 930 years... Adam is now having to relearn this new earth. He was created perfect in the image of God. He was created with a knowledge of God and a knowledge of creation and a knowledge of things that didn't come from school. It didn't come from his experience. Immediately after God creates him, he sets him in front of everything and says, now you name the animals. Well, he had to have some kind of majestic intellect he had to have some kind of divine wisdom that was in, that was a part of him, not because of experience, not because he had lived here on the earth long enough to know what something was, but because it was something that God placed on the inside of him. Just like the Bible says, Jesus has made unto you wisdom. You've got wisdom on the inside of you that doesn't come, that supersedes schooling and experience. If you learn to tap into it. Just like Adam did. Adam didn't have to stop and figure out, now, wait a minute, you're naming the animals. How am I supposed to do that? No, his intellect was a byproduct of his spiritual life. In other words, what he knew was what God had placed on the inside of it. His knowledge came from his spirit, not from his experience. But once he fell, now he's operating a different way. Now, we generally have the idea, and, and again, I don't think people think these things through, but people kind of think these things on their own. We generally have the idea that God made the earth in six days. That means on, on Saturday, according to our calendar, on Saturday, Adam was created. And by Monday afternoon, he and, and Eve had fallen. But we don't know that. Adam could have spent thousands of years here on the earth before he and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. There could have been generations of people before that point in time. It wouldn't have mattered because when Adam sinned, spiritual death came upon all men. So whether, there, whether he had five children, whether he had no children, whether he had 5,000 children, wouldn't have mattered because spiritual death overtook mankind at the same time, at the point in time that Adam sinned because Adam was the federal head of mankind. In other words, his actions carried the, carried the results for everybody. But we have the idea that he sinned almost immediately. We don't know that. He could have been here for a long time. I think he was here for some period of time, some extended period of time. Where the Bible says, immediately after they fell, it says, and Adam knew his wife and brought forth Cain and Abel. That doesn't mean that those were his first children. That means the first ones that he had after he fell. 
People always argue about and, and, and religious circles, they question, where did Cain get his wife? There could have been generations. There could have been cities full of people. We See, we assume that things were a certain way, and the Bible doesn't say that. Now, I'm not saying it can't be that way. I'm just saying we shouldn't make the assumption and, and, uh, and, and accept our own assumptions as truth without knowledge. But Adam and Eve failed. And from that point in time, for the next 930 years, Adam is retraining his mind away from the God's plan, away from how things worked before sin was present on the earth. He's renewing his mind to earthly things out of necessity because it's a different world now. Things don't grow the way that they used to. Remember the curse that God said would come upon Adam and come upon the earth? He said, thorns and thistles will the ground bring forth. Now you'll, the ground will produce only by the sweat of your brow. That indicates that there weren't thorns and thistles before. And it indicates that he didn't have to sweat to bring, make the earth bring forth fruit. Well, he's going to have to learn. He's going to have to learn by experience this new way to operate, isn't he? If he's going to make the earth work for him. So he's renewing his mind in reverse. He's renewing his mind in reverse. So when Adam fell, now he's having to relearn how this creation is going to operate now that Satan is the God of this world. Well, that's just the opposite of what we do when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. We make Jesus the Lord of our lives, and all of a sudden now we're translated into a different kingdom. We're still here on the earth, but we don't operate by the earth's rules. We operate by the kingdom of God rules. We operate according to the word of God, which supersedes and will change the earth's rules. That's why Jesus was able to walk on water. If Jesus had come to the water's edge and said, well, I really need to get across, but nobody can walk on water. You think he'd have been able to do it? But the fact that he came to the edge of the water and said, water is nothing. God created that and God's inside me. You think Jesus didn't know how gravity worked? He's the one that created the earth. He knew he created it to, to, to gravity to work on the earth. He knew that water wouldn't support the weight of a human being, in, not by walking on it anyway. Did that stop him? No. Why? Because of what he knew. Because of what he knew. Because he knew the power of God was greater. Since God is the creator of the earth, he knew the power of God was greater than any physical law that he created. Now, folks, that's an extreme example, and I'm not suggesting you go out to your swimming pool and see if you make it across. But the reality is very simply this. The knowledge of God's Word and the power that backs that Word up, that power that dwells within you, can cause you to change anything and everything about your life. Sin, literally spiritual death, sickness, poverty, none of the results or consequences of spiritual death has any more dominion over you. And most people think of that statement and they think, well, I hope that to be true someday. Why not today? It's written to you today. It's written to you today. And it comes down to one thing. It comes down to renewing your mind to the word. And it comes down to presenting your body a living sacrifice. Folks, sanctification, the sanctification of the body and the sanctification of the mind, if you'll allow me to use that term, the sanctification of the mind, which is renewing your mind to the word. Sanctification is a blessed thing. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. It's something that brings you into the fullness of what Jesus purchased for you. It's not some hard thing. 
It's a wonderful thing. It's something that will cause you to experience, to determine by experience the will of God for you. Well, what does God want for you? He wants everything that he wanted for Jesus. He wants everything for you that he wanted for Jesus. You ever see a situation where Jesus came on, came upon, and he said, uh-oh, we're in trouble on this one? No. When he faced lack, he got supernatural provision. When he faced death, he walked through the middle of the crowd. When he faced sickness, he walked through victoriously. The only time that any of those things had any effect on him whatsoever is when he operated as your sacrifice on the cross. Meaning he didn't experience those things for himself. He experienced them on your behalf. He lived a life here on the earth where sin, spiritual death, sickness, poverty, none of the consequences of sin or spiritual death had any dominion over him whatsoever. And that's the life that he sent you to live. That's the life that he sent you to live. So when sickness attacks your body, stand in the face of it and say, I refuse to accept it. Sickness has no more dominion over me. When lack comes against your family and your finances, say, that's how God created the earth. That's how the power of God is, just, is demonstrated and released. Say, I refuse to live in poverty in Jesus' name. Tell these things to go. Again, remember in Romans chapter 8, Paul put a personality on all those afflictions. He put a personality on, on famine. He put a personality on peril. He put a personality on persecution and those things. Realize that it's the work of an individual, the devil, against you. Trying to make you think God's not on your side. But God's so much on your side, he lives inside you. And you're complete in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Father, I pray, even as Paul prayed for the church, that you would grant unto us, according to the riches of your glory, that we would be filled with the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of your calling. Show us, Lord Jesus. Renew our minds. Open our spiritual eyes to the reality of who we've been made in Christ Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would make known to our spirits the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us. That we would know that we are filled to the full with all the fullness of God. That we don't need one more thing from heaven because Jesus lives inside of us. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God himself. Father, we ask that you would make known to us the riches of your glory, the glory of the inheritance in the saints. Father, I pray that you would cause us to see the, the, how that the things of the world don't compare to the things that Jesus provided for us. That you would make this church, I pray this for the church uh, worldwide, but Father, that you would make this church too heavenly-minded, mindful of spiritual things, that you would help us to see that you're on our side, that you're working for our good, and that everything that our flesh tries to lead us astray to do does not compare to the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would awaken the church worldwide. 
to cause us to know who we are and what we have because of the power of God that indwells us. Father, I pray that you would cause us to realize that we are righteous now, that we are filled with your power now, that we are complete in Jesus now, that we are more than conquerors now, that the power of God is able to keep us from falling now and to present us before you without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, faultless now. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 You know, these things only become true to you when you start to say them. It'd be good for you to take some of these scriptures, and there are many others that we didn't use this morning. Take these scriptures and make a list of them. And every morning when you get out of bed, go look at yourself in the bathroom mirror and start saying these things about yourself. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am complete in Him. The power of God indwells me. Greater is He that's in me than He that's in the world. Become God inside-minded. It'll cause the things of your flesh to fall away. They'll just flake off of you like dandruff. That's not a real good example, is it? (laughs) Start saying these things about yourself. They'll become a reality. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.